in the house. Let me hear your bark. Let me see your bite. Let me see your scar. You know what we about. Come see us in the yard. most mediocre Husky football podcast on the entire internet. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I am Andrew Berg, and I am joined, as normally, by now uh, undoubtedly considered an interstate cougar antagonist, Gaby Lucas. How does it feel to be a cougar antagonist that spans across state lines? I am, aren't I? Yeah, I am. Um, I assume a handful of people listen to this also follow you on Twitter, follow us on Twitter. And most of the um, uh, BYU cyberbullying campaign from our account, like probably 80 percent of that was me. But that was so there was something I've, I've never felt like any amount of bullying was as wholesome as the BYU cougar bullying. Because it it just brought together so many factions of enemies, and I think that it, that is just art. It's the best of humanity uniting yeah. to just shit on someone. And it is funny that this all happened like days after Utah started wearing those jerseys that said "Togetherness" on the back or "Together," and we oh, were yeah. actually able to use that for positive purpose by saying this is the manifestation of our Pac-12 togetherness. We had Ty Jones on over the summer talking about the Pac-12 unity movement, and I don't know if this is exactly what he had in mind, that everyone in the conference could gang up on BYU for their sanctimony. May well have done. uh, Yeah, I I don't think it's to the exclusion of that. No, certainly not. (laughs) It's funny that this is where our, our minds go. I mean, we've had the best game in a very long time. But even before that, the, we, we've been kind of snake bit podcast wise this year. We had, we recorded, or I recorded with Rob Huang from Right From Cal, a preview of the Cal season opener that uh, was rendered obsolete by the time, literally the time we finished recording it. He, he got the news that Cal was starting to te- have players test positive for COVID while we were recording the podcast. The next week, we did record a preview for the Oregon State podcast, but it was uh, Oregon State game, but it was shortened because we had nothing to review. And then last week, we recorded, I thought, a, a perfectly adequate, passable episode that both reviewed the Oregon State game and previewed uh, the Arizona game. And the internet just decided that it didn't want us to uh, be able to, you know, save any of the audio that we had attempted to record. So that brings us to this week. Hopefully the first time of the season we'll be recording a real podcast. Yeah. And for the record, I wanted to say it is such a tragedy that last week's uh, podcast or recording got eaten up by the audio monster because for, I think the first time in the history of this, after we got finished, after we get finished with recording every single episode, the first thing that goes through my mind is like, wow, I am a moron and don't know how to say it's like string words together and for the first time ever finishing that I was like damn I I like was said things that made sense and were smart and then from messages the next day we're like Haha, up yours. <laughs> it's also just <laughs> pathetic because we spent I mean how many months and then you and I specifically spent how many episodes talking about like 
what is John Donovan's offense going to look like? Who's going to be the quarterback? What's the offense strategy going to look like? What's Lake's offense going to be like? And we finally get to see it. And I mean, I would assume that you had this opinion too. We you know, got to the point where we're actually recording the podcast and it's like, we finally have something real substantial to talk about. And okay, fine. None of, I guess I mean, we still did talk about it. Nobody got to hear it other than Rob, but hopefully our audience of one was satisfied. Yeah, I'm sorry, Rob, but I will never put that much effort into anything for just you or <laughs> any one person. Yeah, fair enough. But I don't know if the same level of enthusiasm attaches in week two. Uh, it's not as fresh, but it certainly was more enjoyable to watch the drubbing of Arizona. I consider this something like a 37-0 to zero or 44-7 to seven game. I know there were a bunch of garbage time points scored at the end, and I know those do count in the final record, but in terms of what I take away from this game and what it means for our team uh, quality, I, I kind of cut it off sometime early in the fourth quarter. Let's start off talking about the offense a little bit. Uh, since nobody heard uh, what we our thoughts were on the week one offense, we can now adapt that because we've seen a whole nother week of it. I, you know, I think we, one of the key themes that we talked about last week was there were a whole bunch of potential excuses for why the offense looked like it did in week one. You know, you're going into the game with a new quarterback. It's really bad weather. You're playing a team that struggled against the run. When you got ahead a little bit, you wanted to hold on to the lead. The, you know, the run was working really well at first. By the time it wasn't working as well, you wanted to kill the clock and so on and so on and so on. And we said, both of us, if we see that again in week two, we're going to be concerned. We didn't see that in week two. We saw a very different offense. Dylan Morris had more passing yards in the first half than he had in the whole game against Oregon State. We saw explosive plays, long touchdowns from Puka Nakua and Richard Newton. Tell me a little bit, just run down a few of the things that stood out to you as the biggest differences from week one to week two. Yeah, I mean, besides just the play calling itself, which for what it's worth wasn't actually as different as a lot of us, um, our instinct is to evaluate it on. Like, the play calling itself was actually much more similar. Obviously, there was more passing, but not actually by as much as we all – it all – seemed um but I, I felt like their usage the formations that they used weren't so singular and weren't so tight um I, I I still wouldn't mind seeing a little bit more running out of more uh you know more spread out formations maybe a little bit less like 21 and 22 personnel um although you know part of that depends on the team and it makes sense why they did why they used heavy sets when they did for running against Arizona, given that they're, you know, like their star linebacker is a walk-on who's like 204 pounds. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'll take Mason West over or Mark Redman or Kate Otten. Like, I'll take all of those guys against him. Um, so it, I think it, it made a little bit more sense um, when they did uh, use that, utilize those those uh, personnel sets and formations um, against Arizona. But I think just the diversity of uh, of – how they approach this was something that I was really happy to see because Arizona's defense, well, you know, it's still not great. It was at least it appeared at first, you know, who knows, um, to be genuinely improved from the past, you know, three, four years, um, albeit with minimal, very minimal depth. Um, and so, and also I think they're a much more balanced defense than or, or, uh, Oregon State. So I think seeing – UW have a 
definitive game plan against Oregon State and then look at Arizona's weakness or Arizona's defensive balance and be like, okay, well, we're going to then approach this with a much more balanced attack um, and a much more diverse array of looks and um, and passes and runs, etc. Um, that was something that I was very happy to see. And I was cautiously optimistic after Oregon State that, you know, they would become that the offense would be a little bit more diverse moving forward. Uh, And it was very gratifying to see that play out. Yeah, and it was little things like the pre-stap motions moving from, you know, having two tight ends to splitting them out wide or having a running back starting wide and motioning into the backfield or, you know, just kind of anything that's just kind of a tendency buster where we were throwing on first down more often. You don't want to get super predictable. Like You don't want it to be like, uh, you know, this certain running back subs in, so that means you're definitely passing the ball, or this this tight end comes in the block, yeah. so it's really obvious that you're going to run, or every time we have uh, two tight end sets, we're definitely going to run the ball. You don't want it to be so predictable. Uh, you know, there are good ways to run and pass out of a variety of different sets and with different motions, uh, and I think that we saw a bunch of different ways to do that as opposed to week one. We saw uh, a more limited scope of those. One thing that was interesting to me, kind of was a tendency that we've started to see uh, that didn't exist in week one, was just how how much uh, Dylan Morris looked to Kate Otten in the passing game. You know, Otten, certainly known as kind of a hybrid tight end who could block or pass. He certainly caught his share of passes last year, but he's not Hunter Bryant. He's not doesn't want to be. Uh, were you surprised at all to see him targeted so much more than anyone else uh, on the depth chart on Saturday? I don't think so. I mean, I think I wouldn't have been surprised to not see him just because, ha, Nazi, um, to not see him just because, I hate myself, um, just because, you know, there's a lot of targets. Um, but I think um, based on kind of the, the comments that Jimmy Lake uh, and company had after Oregon State and based on the fact that Kate Otten is such a just dependable, consistent guy for that offense, I, I think – if the first game for your first for your redshirt freshman quarterback is going to be really run heavy, really conservative, then it kind of makes sense to me that the second game against a, a defense that doesn't give you any other ob, super obvious blatant weaknesses that you should attack with a different um, weapon, it kind of makes sense to me that the natural uh, progression would be okay. Well take this next step and open up our offense a little bit more. We're going to give our redshirt freshman quarterback making his second start. We're going to really try to put him in a position to throw to um, the uh, just a very reliable and also not to be overlooked, very large target um, who you kind of know you can trust. And also we knew that, you know, Coach Lake and everyone kind of, I think I got the sense after Oregon State that they were disappointed that he – that they hadn't schemed more ways to get him involved. Um, so it felt to me like a natural progression, but I was happy to see them execute that anyway. Yeah, and I, I would hope, I like I don't wouldn't have a problem with him receiving the largest share of targets over the course of the year in spite of how many talented receivers there are because he's such a, a warm, comfortable security blanket. And that's, I mean, a good tight end is probably the easiest thing to help develop a young quarterback. And, but I don't want it to be to, for him to end up with three times more targets than anybody else or two times more targets than anybody else, just because I think that kind of limits your ability in big plays. Like there's a reason he was 
catching, you know, his big plays for 15 or 20 yards. And then when you do get the ball to Nakua and he's able to hold on to it, he was able to break it for 65 yards. You're not going to get that too much out of a tight end. It's just a kind of a risk reward proposition. And hopefully we can get a little bit more of that. Uh, Part of the reason I would say that the passing game looked cleaner uh, was once again, the offensive line was better than I think anybody really expected it to be coming into the season replacing three starters and the two returners are both at new positions. Luke Wattenberg was uh, the offensive lineman of the week in the conference. I don't think any of us would have predicted him winning that award uh, this season at any point. What do you make of the way what the offensive line has looked like through two weeks? Yeah, I think, um, I think, I think Luke Wattenberg getting offensive lineman of the week kind of is a perfect, I think it's, it perfectly exemplifies kind of where, this whole unit is as, you know, as one thing that you can lose three people, have your highest talent and most experienced combo guy go from right guard to left tackle in Kirkland and then have the guy who kind of felt like the weak, not the weakness, yeah. but it, yeah, I mean, I'm I mean, of the five starters we had last year, he was probably the least great one. I mean, somebody has to be the worst <laughs> of the five. And, and Luke Wattenberg was always kind of one of those guys that felt like he would do some good stuff and then get kind of, you know, messed around and, and, and be the weakness on any given play. He just wasn't consistent. And when he, when he was, the, you know, in the valley of that, when he had his peaks and valleys, when he was in the valley, it didn't look good. And um, so I think I, – but I think it kind of makes sense that moving him to center with his bajillion years of experience in the program – uh, in with center being the the position that's the least about physical ability and the most about your own just knowledge and ability to you know make sure everything's happening as it should. Um, it kind of makes sense to me that 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 he would have this improvement. But also, it was before the season. It was very easy for me to imagine that like you would have Jackson Kirkland playing great. Maybe Henry Bainavalo playing pretty good, Ale being kind of hit or miss. Maybe who, you know whoever at the time was tackle, whether that was Kern or whoever, having some growing pains. And then Wattenberg also, you know, kind of just being the same Wattenberg that we had seen, but at center. <laughs> um, so I think I think the fact though that he's he's had this that success and that and that you know Bainavalo and MJ Ale or Ulumu Ale now is just listed on the roster have. Um, you know, they've both been great. I don't, I know PFF isn't like the end all be all, but PFF both has them graded as two of the well into the top 10 of the Pac 12's interior, uh, offensive linemen. And I think, I, I, and all, I also think, you know, the first two games, you haven't seen as many of those plays that have just kind of gotten blown up, um, behind the line of scrimmage that required a guy like Miles Gaskin to, somehow mysteriously magic a couple extra yards and so I think when as long as you have your offensive line not effing up and even just getting a yard or two of push off the line of scrimmage I mean that's setting yourself up for success and for staying ahead of the chains is if you can keep doing that over the course of a game you're really putting your offense that's you're yeah you're just you're putting your offensive line in, or your offense excuse me in general in a position to have everything going for it from the start. Yeah, it all works together. It's absolutely true. And in the same sense that the the pass blocking looks better 
when the quarterback doesn't bail out of the pocket before he needs to. <laughs> uh, and we've just seen a quarterback who's had better pocket awareness, at least through two games, than what we've seen over the last few years. Uh, I think this may be a little bit of a killjoy, but probably has to be asked is how much of the, these glowing reviews uh, stem from the fact that we were playing probably the worst team in the conference. I know we kind of went into it a little bit hesitant. We didn't want to trash Arizona too hard because they looked decent against USC, not great, uh, and USC has been uneven themselves. And then, you know, this matchup, it just kind of demonstrated there wasn't one thing that Arizona could do. There wasn't really a phase of the game when the starters are playing the starters where they were even playing us even. It was just kind of straight domination in every phase of the game. How much, you know, if we just remove the opponent, if we put an average opponent on the other side of the field, were we that much better this week than we were against Oregon State? Or it, do, would you chalk more of it up to uh, strength of opposition? Um, I think it's a little bit of both. But I also think it's worth, um, you know, it's worth considering the fact that, like, yeah, Arizona is not the best team. But they also, for what it's worth, are – they have – there's aspects of them on – primarily on the offense, but also for what it's worth somewhat on the defense – um, where they are quite good. Like, you looked at those two touchdown passes that Grant Gunnell threw against Julius Irvin in the fourth quarter, and you see, like, he is a good quarterback. You looked at those throws. Julius Irvin was right on his hip, and he still hits him, hits his receiver perfectly, kind of where he only he can get it. Um, so it's not like you're beating down on eight total scrubs where there's zero talent level. There's a decently high talent level in Arizona compared to, um, you know, what you usually think of with a crappy team. Their talent level is certainly higher than Oregon State, minus their Oregon State's uh, transfer portal hall from Nebraska and Oklahoma the last couple of years. Um, and I, 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 I think you also, like, you can't, if you beat down an opponent who isn't great, um, yeah, you're not, you need to have a caveat there, but it's also kind of the best you can do with the situation. So when you look at USC almost losing to Arizona and not really necessarily knowing, does that mean Arizona's almost good or does it mean USC is probably just more of USC where they're just underperforming talent, you know, is probably the latter. Um, but it's also a position where if you are a good team with good talent, that's executing well and being coached up well, the best you can do is kind of pretty much a performance like what you dubbed did um, because the opposition is the opposition and you can't really change how good or bad they are. Um, ironically, I think the fact that um, Arizona has a much more balanced offense than Oregon State, and I think ironically that hurt them because I think um, they have a much – when you look at Grant Gunnell, et cetera, and their passing game, it's much more tempting to use their their passing game if you're Noah Mazzoni um, than if you're Tristan Jebbia uh, at Oregon State, or, I mean, you know, if you're the play caller for and have Tristan Jebbia. Um, so I think, ironically, because UW's defensive strength is so clearly against the pass and their weakness is so clearly against the run when you are run heavy, um, I think, ironically, um, Oregon State being more one-dimensional of an offense kind of helped them 
um, just because they had no choice but to really just lean on Jamar Jefferson. And obviously, Gary Brightwell's no Jamar Jefferson, but he is quite good. And I think if they had leaned on him earlier, then, um, you know, Arizona probably could have hung in there a little bit more. But Kevin Sumlin and Noah Mazzoni are bad coaches. The end. <laughs> well, yeah, let's let's shift gears a little bit to talk about the defense. I think you're right in general that Oregon State's probably a little bit better than we gave them credit for going into the game. And although nobody heard us making these prognostications, Arizona's probably a little bit worse than we gave them credit for. So th- those things do even out a little bit. And I, I do think there was a lot better execution. And I think part of it, too, like we alluded to earlier, is – I think the the first game jitters thing, like trying so hard not to screw it up, kind of put uh, handcuffed the play calling and just the way that the coaches approach the game a little bit. They seemed exceptionally risk averse in the first game uh, to an extent that I didn't, I you know, never really showed up in the second game. Maybe that's because we got up to such a strong start. But let's talk about the other side of the ball a little bit and and how that came to pass. Uh, you mentioned that Gunnell is legitimately a talented enough quarterback to give a decent Pac-12 defense problems. He did not give our defense problems, at least not our first-string defense. It completely dominated him. and The, the camera work was very good, showing his disappointed, de- dejected, disgusted oh, was, uh, oh, face yeah. <laughs> just over and over. And they even they even made those highlight reels of it where it's just cutting from one to the next where it looked like every time – you know, he's just kind of dusting himself off. He looked like a rodeo <laughs> clown or something. It was, I, I, I did actually feel a little bit bad for him. And then, you know, the receivers too, uh, Stanley Berryhill, the third, it's Stanley Berryhill, the third, what a name. Uh, it says, it, it nice. sounds like somebody who'd own a very large boat, uh, but there's <laughs> just nobody on the defense or nobody on our, in our secondary to pick on. It's not like, you know, a good quarterback can find the weak spot in the secondary and that just hasn't existed yet. Um, but the run defense, you know, you, you mentioned there was still a little bit of unevenness uh, when Brightwell, when they did use Brightwell, he still had reasonably good numbers. He just only had uh, 11 carries on the game. What do you think overall was the biggest difference in uh, how we defended the run against Arizona versus how we defended the run against Oregon State, where it was so much more of a problem? Yeah, I, I think part of it was just how balanced Arizona was relative to Oregon State, so that... I, I, it looked to me like as the game went on against Oregon State, like the linebackers, mostly Jackson Sermon, were kind of pressing almost and trying to like guess before it happened what was, you know, where Jefferson was going to end up. And I think against Arizona, there was a little bit more fluidity. And I'm sure also just in between, in between the games, I'm sure that given um, the dogs terrible performance against the run that I'm sure they just spent a bunch of time at practice working on that. Um, so I'm, I, you know, I bet that was a huge part of it. Um, I think, but yeah, as far as Arizona itself, a Brightwell is no Jefferson, but again, he is good. Um, and, and he's a, a decent weapon. Um, but it, it, and, and then it also, yeah, it just looked like it, it looked like even though Lufoscio, I thought he did, pretty all right against Oregon State he he looked much more decisive and then Sermon um Sermon looked a lot more decisive too and it looked like he was more just reacting and going with it than trying to kind of be a little bit too stiff and play a little bit too tight and then being a step too slow like how it was against Oregon State um but yeah that was kind of that was kind of my my gut instinct 
Yeah, and I think probably part of it, too, is they didn't really have a chance to commit to the running game in the same way that Oregon State did. Yeah, because they through, didn't have those huge drives. Yeah, and, and it was 24 nothing after you, you after we had four possessions. We touchdown, field goal, touchdown, or touchdown, field goal, touchdown, touchdown, our first four possessions. Uh, and in that time, I don't think Arizona had a single first down. Uh, they might have had one in there at some point, but uh, that makes it pretty hard to commit to a running game if you're behind by uh, essentially four possessions going into, like maybe the game would have been closer. It would have been less embarrassing for them if they had stuck with the running game after that point, but it wouldn't have been, wouldn't have had any opportunity to like come back and make a game of it. Um, You know, they probably would have, wouldn't have ended up any better than they did just airing it out against our third string defense with cornerbacks playing defensive line and whatnot. Uh, Mm -hmm. You you did mention Ulufosho, and he does deserve special recognition because he was playing like an all-conference linebacker. He was all over the place, decisive, but also he is very, very fast. And when you have that combination of being decisive and, you know, also intelligent and very fast, you can cover a lot of ground. And then ZTF on the outside, his edge rushing was a second week in a row, a huge difference maker. It's like the difference, he's like a one-man pass defense, and obviously – it's a little bit easier when you have this exceptional secondary giving you extra time to rush the passer, but he is getting to the quarterback a lot compared to what we've seen from Husky defensive linemen and outside linebackers in the last few years. Isn't it, maybe this is just me, but I find it really, really fun to have guys who are a little bit less heralded. I know ZTF was at least recognized as a recruit, but he came into the year, you know, probably our fourth or fifth most famous outside linebacker. And Olafosho was a former walk-on. It's it's just more fun seeing guys like this kind of uh, rise up out of nowhere or, you know, relative obscurity and become star players for a really good defense. Yeah, I think, I mean, and I, I don't, if anyone takes this conversation we're having right here and uses it as an excuse to be like, recruiting rankings don't matter, um, right. no. Stop it. You're wrong. I mean, that's why this is fun, because they do matter. <laughs> yeah. And that's like if, yeah. if two-star recruits or walk-ons routinely became superstars, it wouldn't be noteworthy. But because it's so <laughs> rare, it's really fun. Yeah, exactly. And, it, yeah, so it's it's kind of that, like, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think for what it's worth, though, I mean, Ulevoshio obviously was kind of out of nowhere. I think ZTF kind of was the per- – he kind of reminds me of, uh, of Ale, like the defensive version of Ale, as far as that guy who, like, isn't – super highly ranked necessarily. I think he was, what, like a .85 on uh, 24-7. But then as far as just, like, raw physical characteristics, you look at him and you can see that the, there is a significantly higher potential, you know, what if you want to call it, quote-unquote, four-star potential or whatever the shit, um, that is much higher than their rating or their ranking rating that, you know, is more sometimes based on kind of where they are at that point. Um, which is kind of kind of on the same line as that. I think I wrote, I wrote an article about it preseason. Actually, no, I think it was a roundtable between all of us about kind of met, um, recruiting rankings, uh, how they're inconsistent as far as measuring guys' floors versus guys' ceilings, even though, you know, they try to be as consistent, but sometimes there's just physical characteristics that are too tempting or that are, you know, they're too raw or whatever. Um but yeah, I think I think if you if you looked at ZTF as a, a uh, as a pure athlete coming out of high school, it, it was kind of a you know you could see oh yeah you could definitely be good. But if you just looked at his 
ranking because his ranking was based on him just as a football player, which, you know, he played more volleyball than football until pretty much until there was that Twitter thread by that former uh, UW uh, uh, scouting intern, uh, Benny Feinsilber, who's like, yeah, we were watching film about an opponent on the offensive line and he kept popping up, you know? Um, and so, yeah, it's definitely fun seeing guys that kind of make that transition from being just an athlete to a football player, and um, and especially when that happens for your team. Um, but yeah, he's. I'm so happy that he's uh, exploded for the first two games. Yeah, those are fun, and those are high risk, high reward propositions because mm-hmm. you, if they don't ever figure out kind of the fundamental technique, it just never works. Uh, I, I think when you mentioned that, it made me think of Braden Linius because he was kind of a similar yeah. story uh, yeah. as a wide receiver. I, I think he was from Vancouver area, and he never really played American football. And then uh, he had these crazy measurables. And it was just kind of like if he could figure out the basics of being a possession receiver, he's going to be, you know, just like unstoppable. It's an easy eight-yard reception every time he goes out for a route, but it, it just never clicked. Like he never got the, the technique down. But it's a tribute to the defensive coaching that ZTF relatively quickly has not just uh, kind of figured out how to get his athleticism onto the field, but to do it consistently. Like he's, it's not – just go run around the defensive end and break down uh, the edge and let them run at you every time because he hasn't been doing that. He's He actually does seem to have a very good idea of defensive technique. Uh, just before we get off of this game review, obviously part of the theme was uh, Arizona throwing a bunch of garbage uh, points uh, on the board against our second and third string defense. Are you reading anything into that? Do you care about that at all, or is it just kind of like whatever it's – not anybody who's going to see playing time in a meaningful game this year. Um, no, I don't really care about it that much. I mean, like, obviously it's nice to, you know, I wanted the shutout and after they scored that one touchdown and I wanted it to stay there um, just because it's nice and it looks better on a, on a, on a, you know, on a just, if they're just looking at this game, like the national media quote unquote or whatever, uh, you know, that looks nice, but a, I mean, that doesn't matter that much because if you just keep winning, then, you know, that, who cares if it's 13 extra points, um, you know, versus, versus getting second and a lot of third string guys reps. Um, that was pretty much, for example, look back at 2014, that was like kidney, kidney, Sidney Jones and Kevin King and, and Buddha. Like they had a lot of moments like Julius Irvin, um, just getting that in-game experience is, I think, much more valuable than trying to get style points for, what, 10 minutes? Because to me, if you're if you're really – obviously, style points matter. But if you care so much about it that you would rather, in an absolute drubbing of an opponent, put in – keep your starters in to get five gazillion points than let them score, you know, and yeah. you still drub them. Uh, then to me what that says is you don't trust yourself in the long term to just keep winning. So that's kind of Yeah, and I think it's it's really important to you avoid I, I think it's important to avoid any unnecessary injuries in those situations. Kind of goes yeah, to say and, and it seemed like right before everybody came off the field was when Elijah Molden had, you know, a, a slightly scary moment. He walked off and it seemed like he was probably okay not like we're ever going to hear any news about injuries but uh you know just to be extra safe not to have any issues there 
get the experience for the younger guys. Like you said, don't risk any additional injuries. It did make me realize, or just think about, I think at the same time or earlier in the day was, you know, uh, Alabama beat Kentucky like 63 to six or something. Uh, that's You get to that point when the gap between your second string and the other team's first team is the gap between uh, what our first team is and Arizona's first string. So like when we took out our starters, you could see that they weren't as good. Uh, these other teams where they take out their starters, like an Alabama or a Clemson takes out their starters, the guys they're putting in are still the superior team on the field and sometimes by a huge margin. And we're not there. And that's fine. I mean, we'd like to get there at some point, but we know we're not Alabama or Clemson. So the only way we're going to beat uh, a team like Arizona by 60 points is if they also pull out their starters. Um, that's probably uh, the right place to stop on the Arizona game. Stick with us. Take, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back and preview the Utah game, which we only found out about hours before we started recording. So it'll be uh, a lot of spitballing and throwing things at the wall to see what we know about Utah. So stick around for that fun shenanigans. All right. Thanks for sticking around. We are going to talk a little bit about the Utah game. Before we get into the actual Utes, let's talk about the last few days from, I guess it was Saturday, we started to have an idea that Wazoo was having some positive COVID tests. I think we found out on Sunday that they were canceling the Apple Cup. Then all day Monday, there were these teasers about BYU will play any team, any place, anywhere, anytime, uh, except absolutely not do that. Uh, <laughs> it's fine. Just like you, you don't, you're not obligated to take a game on short notice or without a payout or whatever, but you also shouldn't brag about how you're going to do that right before you say you're not going to do it. That's uh, kind of the trade off. Like you don't get to do both of yep. those things. Uh, then we looked at, you know, San Diego state seemed like a possibility. I heard somebody mention the name, uh, Wyoming at one point. Uh, but it did kind of look as soon as, uh, Arizona State started having uh, additional uh, positive test issues that Utah's schedule was going to free up. And about an hour before we normally start recording, we got the official word that the Pac-12 was announcing that Utah would travel to Seattle for a Saturday night game rather than Friday afternoon to play 730 at UW. What a weird 2020 experience this has been, right? Like this is kind of thing in sports that no one has ever thought about until this year. And now it's, we're all becoming experts in these last minute rescheduling uh, issues. Yeah. I'm, I'm so happy that um, this to me, this is kind of the best. I mean, other than playing the Apple cup, obviously playing the Apple cup is the best case scenario. And this is going to be bizarre and terrible not having it. But um, other than that, this is kind of the best case scenario because a everybody and their mother who follows college football unites together to just drag BYU online for being, like, the group of five slash independent slash Mormon version of Nebraska, where they're just, like, like brag about themselves not being respected and being, like, this big-time program who or slash kind of underdogs, but, like, for real. And then the moment someone is, like, calls them out on that, they're like, no, we can't. Yeah. <laughs> and for what it's worth, like, it was – so now that there's a lot more information from both sides, quote, unquote, uh, up about why we wanted them and why they couldn't and blah, blah, blah. Like, sure, okay, yeah, you guys didn't want to because if Utah became available, which now they are, um, you know, then your game would be pulled out from under you. But you weren't going to play anyway. But, you know, whoever, I can see why you, why you guys, I say as if I'm talking to BYU, I, I can see why BYU would, like, not be super down with that. 
but then just don't go around bragging about how you're like this traveling band of Robin Hood ass ne'er do well vigilante football program slayers. Like any team, any time, any place. Okay, what Boise State with their third string quarterback is like. I just there's something about that whole phrase which I don't mind whatever, but there's something about it that seems so like trying to market yourself as these underdogs that you are so not in any game that you've been playing. Um, okay, but anyways, but I digress. Um, so that that was kind of the perfect ideal thing is we start off everyone uniting Oregon fans and Wazoo fans and UW and Utah everybody uniting to be like up yours BYU you whiny little babies and then we get to play our true Utah frenemies Utah anyway which I, to me no season is complete without playing Utah sometimes twice I don't the, I I love them for 364 days of the year other than Morgan Scalley their defensive coordinator because he's kind of racist um (laughs) and then there's that one day where you just like hate them because of whatever because the games are always so tight and so you know so intense and then you go back to kind of loving them because they're not BYU and they're not USC and so you're like okay so I'm just excited to play them if we can't play Wazoo at least we get to just crap on BYU and then play Utah yeah, I think that that's all right. You're, I mean, the, the best things about Utah are that they're not BYU and they're not USC. Like, they, they actually have a little bit of the underdog credibility that BYU is trying to pretend that they have because they play in a conference with better resourced schools and they go head-to-head with them and often beat them, which is admirable. Like, they're, they're kind of, you know, further away, less historical success. And they've done a lot more in the last 30 years than BYU has done, who is, you know, very proud of, beating a seven and four team in 1984 uh, and they'll tell us all about it. Uh, so what we do know <laughs> against Utah, I never even knew that the story about uh, BYU's national championship team, the best team they beat all year was seven and four. Uh, and they also beat a six and four team. And those are the only teams with non losing records they played all year. Um, so we, the only thing, only data point we have on Utah so far was, again, a debut win against USC. Deja vu to last week when we were playing Arizona. Their only game so far was a loss to USC. Uh, Utah gave the Trojans their first semi-comfortable win. It was 33-17. Uh, the defense held up well enough. They weren't great against the uh, Keaton Slovis uh, wobbly air raid. Slovis had seven and a half yards per attempt. USC ran for four and a half yards a carry if you take out the sacks. So those are so-so numbers. You know, fine, you can get by with it and nothing special. The problem seemed to be the offense putting the defense in really tough spots. Uh, they threw three interceptions. They lost two fumbles. And they also lost their starting quarterback, uh, Cam Rising, who was a transfer originally a commit to uh, Oklahoma, early enrolled at Texas, lost a job to Sam Ellinger, transferred out, didn't get a waiver, waited a year, at Utah, won the job over another transfer, graduate transfer, Jake Bentley from South Carolina, and then immediately uh, played like two series, and he's out for the year with a shoulder injury. So Bentley's going to be the quarterback. He was also not very good. He threw two of the interceptions. Uh, They've got a running back by committee where they had Zach Moss last year. Uh, What do you make of all of this information so far? I know this is kind of hard to draw conclusions from one game, particularly when they're playing their first game against an opponent who already had two uh, on their schedule, 
but I'll just shut up for a little bit and let you talk about your opinions <laughs> on Utah. There's just a yeah. lot of information there. So there's a lot to sort out. <laughs> there is. Um, yeah, well, I think I think um, there's both a pro and con for – or uh, an advantage and disadvantage for Utah going into uh, this game. A, I think the improvement from game one to game two is – I mean, you know, we saw it for UW. We saw it for a bunch of teams that the first game – teams that started that had their first week canceled – because uh, of COVID or whatever, you know, we're at a disadvantage to playing someone who was on their second game or in USC's case, third game, you know? So I think, uh, I think there's reason to expect that many units of Utah's will just be functioning kind of with a, a better rapport against UW. Um, but I also think just in general on a whole, Utah kind of things align really perfectly for Utah last year and they're recruiting at a higher level slowly but surely, you know, getting Ethan Calvert, um, getting that one corner from La Habra, oh, what's his face, um, Clark Phillips, I think. Um, you know, so they're starting to get guys like that, but I think in general you really they, – they don't have a talent level on a macro scale where you can really go from a team like last year that had so many seniors, especially on the defensive side, but also on offense, that all kind of – decided together we're going to come back so that we can have this team be just kick ass like they were last year. Um, they're not at a point where they can lose all of that and then just reload. So I think it would be naive of anyone to think, uh, you know, Utah fan or not, that they're, they weren't going to have some bumps this year. Um, you know, I mean, they lost Julian Blackman who could in the secondary, who could be defensive rookie of the year in the NFL at Indianapolis. They lost Bradley and I, I think they lost, I think they lost Foto. Um, they lost the other corner slash safety who I can't remember his name. Um, although Foto might've been the year before. I, I can't remember. There's that whole kind of generation of Utah defenders that I get confused. I, I uh, forget who left in 2019 and who left this year. Um, you know, and then you have Zach Moss gone in Buffalo and then um, Tyler Huntley, who, I think Tyler Huntley kind of was overlooked by a lot of people because he, as a, when he started his career at Utah, um, when he became the starter, he kind of looked like that kind of prototypical Utah quarterback that's kind of a game manager, isn't necessarily going to wow you, but he improved a lot over his career there. Um, so even when you have guys like Cam Rising and Jake Bentley, who are, you know, have that proven experience in college, uh, that's still, I think, a guy who people could overlook as far as replacing him. Um, so, yeah, so I think they're – obviously I think they're going to be improved from last week just because of getting those bumps out of the way. But I still think, you know, Utah is kind of – they have to climb back up to where they were last year. Um, and, and I think Bentley is going to be pretty key uh, for us because from what I know of him when he was at South Carolina um, – you know, he was Jacob Easton's grad year. He actually was supposed to be from the class of 2017, but he did like JT Daniels, graduated a year early, enrolled early at SCAR, and then started as a true freshman. And he seemed, kind of reminds me of Christian Hackenberg in that he came in, started as a true freshman, was, um, you know, thought of pretty highly. I remember Greg McElroy, the ESPN guy, saying in the offseason after 2016 that he thought Jake Bentley was better than Jacob Easton. Um, 
but I have no idea maybe. why I've messed it, it, it ends yeah. up being kind of like, maybe he is, who cares? <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> like fifth but, best but, quarterback in the conference yeah. or something, yeah. Yeah, but, um, but I just, I remember, so the, the thing I know about Jake Benley is that, it back to like the Hackenberg uh, comparison, is that he came in, true freshman, did pretty well for a, for a true freshman, caveat, and then kind of seemed to have been kind of screwed over by the coaching staff as far as getting in these bad habits. And then it turned into, um, you know, he would do really great and then make these boneheaded, you know, crap that isn't going to win you games. <laughs> and so I think it's a matter of not of, of you know, which Jake Bentley we get against uh, uh, UW on Saturday. I think it's more likely that, you know, if ZTF plays like he's been playing and Ryan Bowman accompanies him and the secondary plays like how they've been playing, I think it's more likely that UW can kind of can pressure him into being the bad version of Jake Bentley. But, um, yeah, I think this is a really interesting year for Utah, and I, I'll be keeping an eye on them. Yeah, I think Utah does have good receivers if there's a strength uh, where they, they didn't have crazy turnover like they did in so many places. Nakua it's at senior. wide receiver. Sorry? I was going to say Nakua Sr., uh, Puka's Nakua, older brother. Right. Uh, Kuth or Kite or Kut or Kate or however you say that one guy's name. And it, yeah, there, There's a relatively deep group of receivers and with some mm-hmm. experience. Uh, the fact that they threw the ball uh, over 30 times, almost 40 times, I think, against USC in spite of uh, the fact that they had so many or like so many issues at quarterback and so much uncertainty. Uh, mm. The fact that they kept throwing the ball shows that they do have some faith in that receiver group. Um, so, you know, I think you're right that the key to this game defensively will be forcing Bentley into mistakes. And it seems that the defense is still, I think by the end of the year, Utah's defense is going to look a lot better than it did last week against uh, USC yeah. uh, because th- this coaching staff is so good at developing Uh, defenders but in the same way that our second string looked pretty spotty against Arizona late in the game you need game reps to get there and they've had very few of them so far so in a sense getting them in their second game of the year is very valuable for our uh, offense and I think we'll probably you know there's a pretty good shot that we'll be able to move the ball against this Utah team better than we were against you know past iterations where we required uh, a Byron Murphy pick six to even stay alive. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, but I would take a pick six if we got one in this game. Also true. Uh, so let's wrap it up there. But let's do our uh, recommendations before we finish up. Do you have any uh, interesting recommendations or plugs to share with the listeners? And if you want to reuse whatever we talked about last week because nobody actually heard it, that um, we can lie and say we're not doing that. Oh, I forgot about that. Have I said Taskmaster yet? I think I have. So I'm not going to say Taskmaster, but um, I did just start rewatching uh, or no, I'm about to start rewatching Flight of the Concords because I, I think it's so great. Um, I think every every few years I rewatch it and then in between that time, I just forget it exists. And then I stumble yeah. across something, uh, Flight of the Concords, something on like Twitter or whatever. And then I get reminded that it is my favorite thing in the world. Um, and any show that says, um, you could, sings a song about how you're, uh, at, depending on the street, I bet you're at <laughs> least in the top three most beautiful girls on the street. You could be a part-time model, but you'd still probably have to keep your normal job too. Um, 
I, yeah, I love that show. It's so, it makes me feel better about my own life. When it I'm is great. Yeah. Jermaine. When they're living, and, when the, Jermaine moving out of the apartments and then moving into a storage closet and hosting a party in the storage closet, <laughs> that's a place that you can feel pretty good about your life. Yeah. And just like uh, as far as I'm like, yeah. I watch them and I'm like, I'm not as dumb as you. <laughs> well, right. Uh, and then, Brent went on and won an Academy Award for writing music, which is really cool. I just watched a movie last weekend with Jermaine in it. Uh, it's called I Used to Go Here. It was about uh, Gillian Jacobs playing a writer in her 30s who's going on a book tour and goes back to her old college and kind of relives her college experiences. But Jermaine played her college professor who was like her, uh, you know, reason for getting into writing or whatever. And he was pretty funny. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean that's that's not it was just a decent movie, nothing great. So that's not going to rise to the level of a, you know vaunted uh, podcast recommendation at the end of the show. I yes, love you're Light of not the recommending it. Do not no. listen, watch it if you're Can listening to it. this. If you watch it, don't do it on my recommendation. It's just okay. <laughs> um, I actually I will admit that last week I recommended something from an anthology of the best American sports writing of the year. Um, and I'm going to recommend a different story from that book. I finished it now, but the one that I enjoyed the most was called Shooting a Tiger by Brian Burrow from the May 2019 uh, Vanity Fair. It's free online if you just Google Vanity Tiger, Vanity Fair Shooting a Tiger. Uh, it's about uh, environmentalists and uh, hunters in India debating and fighting about how to subdue a tiger that had been uh, too close and threatening people in a village. And it, against that backdrop, they talk about the issues of like tigers being like not having enough land to feed off of and threatening humans in, throughout India and the cultural wars between hunters and environmentalists through the country. And this is kind of a, a flashpoint for their ongoing struggles. And it's, so weird and strange and interesting. It's just one of those, it's not super long. It's probably 20 minutes to read it, but it's just like so many strange things. You come away with it, which is like a very rich layered texture of this world that I would never have any exposure to. So it's called shooting a tiger from vanity fair. If you're into, you know, wildlife or hunting, or even I'm not into either of those things. And I still found this absolutely fascinating. So final thoughts time. What are you uh, thinking about as we sign off? I'm just so happy that we get to play Utah. <laughs> that's yeah, literally. That's I really am too. And I'm still, I'm holding out hope that they're still uh, going to figure out a way to play the Apple Cup, whether it's in that yeah. uh, week seven or maybe something in between if we don't have like a proper bowl season. It seems conceivable to me that we would still get that game before the end of the year. Yeah, I think that's totally, I think it's not outside of the realm of possibility. All right, so we'll end on that happy note. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and go dogs. Yeah.